0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where right this very moment, we have major breaking news that has broken out this Tuesday morning, this Tuesday afternoon, Uh, most of it relating to the Russian-Ukraine scandals. We're going to have the latest for you. Yes, the U.S. government was improperly monitoring people, not just under FISA, but also at the State Department when the Ukraine impeachment scandal uh, started. I'm one of those people they were monitoring. We're going to tell you who was being monitored, what was being monitored, and why it broke the law. Uh, And in addition, Bill Barr, Chris ray they see eye-to-eye on something. They've instituted sweeping new reforms uh, to the way FISA applications are reviewed, audited, prepared, submitted to the court to ensure we don't have another Russia debacle in the future. We're going to have the latest on that. And a big guest today, Michael Oren, the longtime Israeli ambassador to the United States who uh, has a new book out today. He's been retired as a diplomat for a few years, but uh, an essential voice on all things Middle East and Israel. Uh, He's got his first new book out. We're going to talk about that, as well as so much more to talk about in the historical news unfolding in the Middle East today and what lies ahead. So we're going to go to a quick commercial break, as we always do. When we come back, some breaking headlines on Russia and Ukraine, followed by an exclusive interview with Michael Oren the former Israeli ambassador to the United States and one of the world's most preeminent Middle East experts. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, Visit AMAC, AMAC.us slash just news to become a four year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. In a few minutes, we're going to start our exclusive interview with Michael Orn, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States and a man who has a lot of sway, a lot of insight, A lot of respect across the Middle East for his work over the years as an Israeli soldier, as a diplomat, as a respected author, scholar, historian. He's got a new book out. It's a fiction book, not nonfiction, but a fiction book, a compilation of some really remarkable short stories that we're going to talk about, as well as all of the important things, including the historic new Israel-UAE deal that was struck by the Trump administration a couple of weeks ago what it means for the Middle East. Michael Oren will be here to talk about that and so much more. Israel elections, U.S. elections, what's uh, ahead in the region and the world uh, during these turbulent times. But first, we have some breaking news today. I have hinted at this for a long time. Tom Fitton, the uh, head of Judicial Watch, has hinted at it for a long time. We have long suspected that the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, the United States State Department, our diplomats, engaged in inappropriate or illegal Uh, monitoring of social media communications of several Americans, and uh, today I have confirmed that the State Department will release documents under the Freedom of Information Act to Tom Fitton's Judicial Watch Group that will show, will confirm, that U.S. Embassy officials in Kiev inappropriately, against the law, monitor the social media accounts of myself, Tom Fitton, Sean Hannity, Uh, Laura Ingram, Lou Dobbs from Fox News, Sarah Carter, my longtime colleague, Dan Bongino and others who were significant players uh, in the story on Ukraine, the Ukraine impeachment scandal, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, the ongoings in our embassy with George Soros and the Ukrainian prosecutors. Uh, We now will be able to confirm on the record with documents that there was a legal monitoring of our social media accounts. In all, 13 Americans were monitored, had their social media accounts monitored. This was back in March of 2019 and April of 2019. Those are the first two months I broke the early Ukraine stories about Joe Biden, about the Ukraine ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Ivanovich, is dealing with Ukrainian prosecutors about certain uh, prosecutions that were ongoing in Ukraine, the Joe Biden famous tape that uh, where he bragged that he withheld USA to Ukraine until a prosecutor was fired. And that prosecutor turned out to be investigating Hunter Biden's employer in Ukraine, Burisma Holdings, where Hunter Biden served on the board, made millions of dollars for his own firm uh, as a board member. Uh, that those stories raise serious questions about the appearance of a conflict of interest involving the Bidens and in some of the dealings that the Ukraine embassy representing the United States in Kiev, had with Ukrainian prosecutors potential or perceived interference in certain prosecutions in Ukraine, um, well, when those stories were breaking, it turns out that Marie Ivanovich's team, she was a U.S. ambassador at the time, Trump later fired her after these stories became public, she uh, or her team ordered that 13 Americans have their social media uh, accounts monitored in real time to track what they were saying, what they were doing, so that the embassy, assumably, could react, monitor, counteract the reporting uh, that I and others were doing that was going on at Fox News, was going on with other uh, players in the space. Uh, They were then told to stop it when the word got to Washington. So State Department of Washington found out. How did they find out? Because the Kiev embassy didn't have enough resources to keep this monitoring going. So they went to Washington for help. And as soon as folks in Washington found out, they said, hey, stop. You can't do this. State Department can't target Americans. It's against the law. It's forbidden by the law. I think the word used in the memos that I've seen are barred, as in prohibited, not as in bill barred, but as in prohibited, Um, those uh, conversations were captured in email in real time. They've been rumored for quite some time. Tom Fitton started talking about them right around the time the impeachment trial began. uh, This has the potential to be yet another infringement on Americans' rights by the government. Not as serious as what Carter Page went through uh, when he was the subject of an illegal and improperly vetted um, FISA warrant, which is very invasive. But nonetheless, our State Department should be focused on foreign affairs, not Americans' social media accounts. These documents will be coming out through Tom Fitton, through a FOIA. I got a readout from multiple sources today and was able to break the story. It's up on justinnews.com. And when the documents become public... You'll be the first to have them. We'll be bringing those to you live on justthenews.com. That could happen still today or tomorrow. Let's keep an eye out. We're waiting for them to be transmitted and made public. But uh, this is a major development, and it raises new questions about what our government does with all of its awesome technology, all of its awesome powers. Listen, monitoring someone's social media account isn't the same as listening to their phone calls. But I will tell you, uh, it is part of a larger Dynamic in which government officials increasingly feel the private communications the private thoughts the private ideas of Americans are their domain to trample upon and um, I Being one of the alleged victims here one of the people who was targeted by the State Department uh, I have some strong feelings on this again. I have no problem looking at my social media accounts because uh, I'm public about everything I say and I'm not very provocative on social media I mostly just socialize the headlines of stories. I or my colleagues have written. Um, I wasn't engaged in any campaigns, any politics, anything. We were just simply interested in uh, getting attention to the stories that I wrote in 2018-19 about Russia, Ukraine. Uh, But it is chilling nonetheless. It's inappropriate for the State Department to use taxpayer resources to do this. And I'll say something first here. I I hope to talk about this more when I get uh, a little bit more understanding. But there is some information in these documents that I'm aware of uh, that raises questions to me about whether the State Department's monitoring of my activities, my communications, went beyond social media. Uh, I won't say more than that right now. I have some reporting constraints, but there is reason to believe that the State Department was in possession of non-public information about something I was working on, somebody I was talking to, or, or got, had gotten information through channels from, uh, and uh, it raises concerns to me that maybe the social media wasn't the only monitoring going on. Now, I want to give the State Department the benefit of the doubt, but there's a red flag in these documents uh, that raise concerns to me uh, that uh, the monitoring by the State Department may have gone beyond just watching my social media. It may have also involved interviews or comments or discussions I was having with other people or about other people. Uh, I'll leave it at that for now, but it's something we need to come back to. All right. Before we get to Michael Oren, who's coming down the line in just a few minutes, an incredible interview with one of the Middle East premier experts, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, new author of a brand new fiction book that is just an amazing compilation of short stories. You should get it. It is a remarkable uh, book, and we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. But back to the Russia scandal. We've been talking about Ukraine for a few minutes, but Russia is just as important today. Attorney General Barr, FBI director Chris Ray for the uh, announced sweeping new changes to the way the FBI will vet, approve, review, seek FISA warrants uh, against Americans if they're targeting an American, uh, there are new rules and these include new ways they're going to vet and, uh, and confirm information. Remember in the uh, Carter Page FISA there was information in there contained key to the judges approving this surveillance warrants, not once, not twice, but four times over 12 months, uh, the surveillance was conducted. Uh, they marked things as verified that turned out to be not only unverified, they turned out to be false, Russian disinformation in some cases. The Attorney General, Bill Barr, the FBI Director, Chris Ray, have gotten together and really put into place significant new changes. This includes the creation of a new auditing office, so will audit not only compliance, but the actual FICEs themselves to make sure that all of the rules have been met, that everything really that is called verified is in fact verified. There's also a second memo that requires a new line of supervision, a new line of approval, new standards, protocols for when the FBI wants to spy on a federal office holder, a member of Congress, their campaign, someone running uh, for election at the federal level. The FBI is going to have to go through additional hoops and review processes. These are good and solid, improved um, reforms. They go beyond what Chris Ray did shortly after the Inspector General report excoriated the FBI last December for widespread misconduct and mistakes, and in erroneous information and omitted evidence in the Carter Page Russia collusion FISA warrants. Chris Ray took some initial steps that were, you know, applauded, but not significant. These are more significant steps. They have more teeth to them, they have more processes to them. But again, uh, everyone will say good job on the process, but setting a process to stop things in the future still lacks one very important thing. And what is that? Accountability for those who violated the last processes. Remember, there were processes in place, albeit not as strong as these new ones, but the processes were in place. The problem was the people blew past them. They cheated, they changed a document, they altered evidence they omitted exculpatory evidence, they portrayed as confirms the things that were not only uncorroborated, in some cases they had been debunked. Um, That behavior won't change because of processes, it will change because people are severely punished for cheating, for failing to follow the rules. So far one man's been criminally held accountable, uh, Kevin Kleinsmith. several FBI agents, including McCabe and Stroke, Andy McCabe, former deputy director, James Comey, former director, um, Peter Strzok, the uh, FBI agent that supervised Crossfire Hurricane, they've lost their job, so that's some form of accountability. But the high penalty that will deter people from bypassing or violating or running over processes and rules will only be cemented if, in fact, there is more punishment for those who did the horrible things that caused us to go through the Russia collusion false narrative and so uh, Good start today. I think people who've looked at these rules think these are good ideas. They have teeth to them There's they make sense. But again, the bigger issue wasn't the rules in the FBI uh, Collusion Russia case Uh, It was the people and their personal behavior their personal decisions Which included the illegal falsification of a piece of evidence the omission of uh, exculpatory evidence the failure to notify the court of flaws in prior supported evidence, and the false claim that the first, second, third, and fourth FISA warrants were in fact verified when evidence in them was not. In fact, there might have been contradictory or conflicting evidence with the storyline the FBI told the courts. That behavior won't stop uh, the temptation to run past the rules, to cheat, to uh, cut corners, to omit or... Falsify evidence won't be there unless more criminal penalties more severe penalties are imposed on the people who already broke the rules That's what I think Americans are waiting for. We're gonna keep an eye on that I have a sense there could be some more prosecutions coming in the next few weeks to a month We'll keep an eye on that. I also think we could see an interim report from uh, the uh, Special prosecutor John Durham, but today's a step forward. It's an improvement Uh, if people are afraid to violate the rules because there's a deterrent, serious criminal and professional consequence to bad behavior, then I think we will see in the future uh, that these rules will make a difference because people will want to comply with them because they don't want to get punished. And the rules themselves actually make sense if you read them. I've talked to several FBI experts right off the bat, thought these are good advancements from where the FBI is. But again, the culture to cheat has to be uh, deterred has to be so penalized that people say that's not worth doing in the future for all of these new processes to have real meaning. All right, enough on Ukraine, enough on Russia. When we come back, we're going to the Middle East with Michael Oren, the great uh, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, a Middle East expert, great author, uh, renaissance man, thoughtful leader, thoughtful writer, thoughtful historian. You're not going to want to miss this interview because there's so much going on in the Middle East that's historic, from Iraq, to Iran, to uh, Israel and the UAE, having new diplomatic relations. We're going to talk about all of that when we get back from the commercial break. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very, very special guest, uh, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, a best-selling author, extraordinary diplomat, historian, public servant. Michael Oren, welcome to the show.
1: Good to be with you, John. Thank you for having me.
0: It's an honor to have you. And uh, let's start with one of the most interesting things I got to look at yesterday, your brand new book, The Night Archer. What a remarkable book. And I want to ask you, you you've had three best-selling nonfiction uh, books right. in the past. What, uh, what led you to write a fiction book for the first time?
1: Well, it's actually not the first time. I've been writing oh. fiction since I was a kid. <laughs> had no a kidding. Of published. Yeah, yeah. And I started as a fiction writer. And as a nonfiction writer, the biggest compliment I ever got was that my nonfiction reads like a novel. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, but, you know, I've been in government for many years, and it's and, and similar to American government. In parts of Israeli government, you can write, but you can't publish. You know, this you know, the president of the United States is not going to publish a book, right? Right. Uh, because the idea is you're not going to use your exalted position to advance book sales. But you can write, and every day uh, I get up very early uh, and I write. And uh, I often love the, the form, the genre of, uh, of short fiction, which on one hand gives you unlimited freedom to be anything, be anywhere, anytime you want to be. On uh, the other hand, it's a right. tremendous right. discipline. I, I call it the haiku of fiction. And, uh, you know, novelists can write things in 300 pages. A, a short story writer has to write it in three pages. Uh, and I love that form.
0: it it is remarkable you know as you read through and I I got a chance last night to really dig in and read for the first time these are little stories that say a lot of big things about humanity the fragility of humanity the um uh, the uncertainty of humanity the goodness of humanity it it just each anecdote as he hand through these little short stories seems to say something about you know just us as humans and, and all of the challenges and flaws and and good sides that we have what uh what what inspires you to do each one of these stories? I mean, where do they come from? When, when you? Oh, you they
1: come to... from many things. You know, as, as you said, I've had I've had a, an interesting life, probably a little bit too yeah. interesting life. I've been a, a historian, academic. Uh, I've been a, a diplomat, an ambassador. I've been a soldier for many years. Right. Uh, participated in several wars. Um, father, husband, um, grandfather now uh, to five, and um, I draw on all of these experiences, but. You're absolutely right. I just don't want to tell a story. If I tell a story that's set, uh, for example, in history, and, uh, you know, I have a story about conquistadors in the 16th century. Right. Uh, or Muslims, or sultans even in the 17th century, or uh, about World War II or the American Civil War. But the American West, which is one of my favorite stories, called Metaxas, set in 1841 on the American frontier. Right. Um, I want to delve into them and be as authentic as I can. For example, in that story, Metaxas, about the American frontier, right. I sat and I read u s military correspondence from the 1840s, so I wanted to get the language right. Wow, I wanted to see get their spelling right, but that 's not what the story 's about. The story is about the human being and the monster in each of us and how we 're divided and so I wanted each story not just to be set and, and to tell an interesting tale with it usually with a, you a bit of a twist at the ending, but I do want to make a, a, a comment so I also want to write, I want to be able to have freedom. I want to be able to write mystery stories or ghost stories. Uh, as you saw in the collection, I'm very interested in faith. I'm a person of faith. So that's- Absolutely. To me. I can write about God. I can write about Satan. Uh, and, uh, and I can also dwell on these experiences and go deep into them. What does it feel like to be you know, a soldier in combat?
0: That, the Metaxas one is one of the ones I read last night. And you're right, it has that historical authenticity but it also has a man grappling with the horrors of war, the horrors of violence, the horrors of humanity, the darker side of humanity. What do you look at today where, uh, particularly in the United States, there's such a divisive uh, rhetoric, a divisive political system. It seems like mutual destruction is the only abject of politics today. Uh, what message do you hope readers take from this book about just the cultural and, and historical times that we're in today? Well, not to
1: belabor the term, but it's quite literally freedom. You know, I think you know that in the United States and other parts of the West, there's tremendous pressure on writers and other artists uh, not to exercise their freedom, to, 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 to narrow their scope over and over and over again, depending on what, you know, what race they may be or religion or sexual orientation. Right. And, um, and so we're getting narrower and narrower. I think I view this book as sort of like a, like a, like a battle cry of freedom, if you will. It's not an original title, but it's, it is that kind of expression of here i can be anything and anybody and no one's going to tell me otherwise and okay there are risks involved uh, and maybe i'll get criticized for it but right. that right. that in many ways it's it's asserting imagination and there's been a war against imagination in recent years as you know yeah. a, a war against creativity sure. and this is this is this is the, the, the counter-attack if you will
0: <laughs> <laughs> well you've you definitely succeeded the writing is sensational i mean just from a literary standpoint uh, I was just sucked right into the writing. It just keeps you there. And I think, you, like you said, each anecdote has almost a different voice, a different theme, uh, but the the writing is the thing that just holds everything together. I was very, very impressed. And what's the difference that when you free yourself up and you said you've been a fiction writer since a, a little boy, uh, what's the difference when you, you're, you, know, you write diplomatic documents, you write correspondence, you write nonfiction, then you suddenly get this extraordinary playground that is fiction. Uh, what sort of changes did you do yourself in terms of writing and personality to, to create that imaginative um, narrative that you did?
1: Well, um, unlike, say, an op-ed um, that I write pretty much during the week, I write a lot for the press or, or even writing right. a history book, um, the inspiration for the short stories come to me. I don't go to them. But it's like someone knocking on the door and saying, here's a story. And, and I must tell you, John, my first reaction to almost every one of these stories is, no way. No way. This, <laughs> this is too crazy. I can't right, write right? Right? I, I have one story, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, about a tiger who's having a lunch break. And the lunch break, <laughs> he's eating a person. And ah. it's told from the first person about from the tiger. And I, I asked myself, this idea comes to me, what would a tiger think? Right. Um, eating a human being. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, but the story is not really about a tiger and a human being. It's, a bit, it's about the way humanity and human beings fit into the cycle of nature. Yeah. And whether we are truly part of that cycle of nature. So I'm trying to say something. And the whole story is a page and a half, um, but that was immensely challenging for me. Think about this. Okay, what what is this tiger going to be like?
0: Yeah. Um, and
1: there are many stories like this. And um, so these stories come to me, and and my again my first reaction is it's nuts. And uh, but then sit down at that opposite the op the empty page of the computer, which is the most frightening thing, really outside of war, it's the most frightening thing in the world.
0: It is, it um, is. And,
1: and see if it comes to me. And, and, and sometimes they do. And sometimes they get thrown off. And I, my wife is my best critic here and doesn't always pass muster, I must tell you. Um, and uh, so it, it comes from a different part of me. I, I would say that the, the history and the, and the op-eds uh, come from my brain. And these come from someplace deeper and different so
0: and that's it well it's uh, it's a wonderful work of art i enjoyed it. i only got it halfway through last night but i'm not going to start reading until i get the oh please day.
1: thank you i'm delighted to hear that
0: it's um, hear it's that. wonderful and, and the short form which is a lost art today i mean uh you know, what's I mean, most of these stories are one and a half to three four pages tops and we don't it's
1: perfect it's perfect for covid people it's perfect for the lockdown <laughs> it is if you've got adhd and you're you've run out of things to watch on netflix this is the book for you
0: it is indeed. I couldn't agree more with you. And uh, well, congratulations on the book, folks. If you, uh, you. haven't had a chance to, to get a copy, please. I think it went on sale today. So The Night Archer, it is amazing. Yeah. I highly recommend it. I know it's on Amazon and all the other great places where books are sold. Now, Mr. Ambassador, I want to pivot a little bit because there's been an awful lot of news uh, back in the indeed. Middle East, back in the United States. I wonder if, first if we could get your reaction to the historic deal that uh, was reached. I mean, yesterday we had a flight from Israel to United Arab Emirates, the peace deal between the recognition of UAE of Israel. What's your reaction to that? And what is the next step fallout opportunity that comes from that extraordinary moment? It's a total game changer.
1: The uh, peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab uh, uh, Emirates has totally upended 30, 50, even 70 years of assumption about the Arab-Israeli conflict and how you end it. It's amazing. And you know, there's, a, there's an entire industry around these assumptions. There are universities right. Right. and think tanks and the media. What were the right. assumptions? One is, Israel had to pay for peace with the land. This goes back to the early 1950s. It does. And that was always the assumption. You know, you make peace with Egypt, you've got to get back Sinai. You get peace with Jordan, you've got to get back to the Jordan Valley. You've got to get peace with Syria. Fortunately, we never did this. You've got to get back to Golan Heights. That's the one this agreement, no payment, no territory. Okay. Second assumption, the core conflict, not only of the Arab-Israeli conflict, but of the entire Middle East, is the Israeli-Arab country, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Right. and the core of that conflict are Israeli settlements. So we've reached this peace agreement with the, the Emiratis without really making peace with the Palestinians. Palestinians are sitting off at the table. Uh, we haven't ripped up a single settlement, we haven't, just, we haven't uprooted any Israeli, um, completely, completely disproved. And perhaps the last assumption, and I think in many ways the most damaging assumption, has been that the Palestinians, as supposedly the weaker party, always have to be incentivized and rewarded, especially, get this, especially when they leave the table, well, the Palestinians have left the table repeatedly since the 1930s. They actually hold the world's record for people who have been offered a state and have turned it down, usually with violence. And they did it to, to George Bush. They did it to Bill Clinton. Um, they did it to Barack Obama, the most pro-Palestinian president in history for eight years. They they told them to, whatever, to take a powder.
0: And every time they left the
1: table, they got more money. They got an embassy in Washington, Right, They got recognized by 135 states in the world. I mean, who would ever go back to the table doing so well by leaving the table? So along comes this administration, along comes this peace says, No, you leave, you're gonna pay a price. If you leave, we, the Americans, are gonna recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. We're gonna cut off uh, aid to UNRWA, the refugee organization. We're gonna close the Palestinian embassy in Washington. And guess what? We're going to mediate. We're gonna broker a peace between Israel in one of the most influential Arab countries. And, you know, strangely, I think, interesting enough, it probably has contributed more to Israeli-Palestinian peace than all of those incentives. Because the Palestinians are going to internalize now, John, the time's not on their side. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they start hinting that they're willing to come back to the table. So it's a a tremendous uh, revolution. But, and there's one more but, and that is this. It is a wedding with two Ds. Of the most innovative state in the world, state of Israel, we're ranked number one in innovation in the world, with one of the wealthiest states in the world. And that's going to be transformative, not just for the entire Middle East, but I think for the world.
0: Yeah, people haven't grasped the economic and corporate opportunities that this partnership is going to bring. I mean, obviously, we focused on the peace, which is important, but you have two economic powerhouses now working together in a region that needs economic growth and economic stability. It seems like that's going everything. To be- yeah, one of the big payoffs, for sure. I can't tell you how
1: many, how many businessmen I've talked to here in Israel who have received already letters from their counterparts in the Gulf saying, we want to do business.
0: Isn't that amazing? Amazing. It
1: really is. Quite, quite, quite miraculous.
0: Yeah, it really is. When you look at the table now, one of the dynamics you talked about is essentially the U.S. and Israel for the first time walked from the table and said, listen, you guys want to keep quitting on negotiations. We're going to go do other things. I think you've hinted at this. Does this bring everybody back to the table, maybe in a more constructive way? Is that the end game here, hopefully?
1: I think if the Palestinians internalize that every time they leave, they're going to pay a price. If they internalize that time is not working on their side, it's against them, and that eventually, not just the UAE but Oman, Bahrain, Sudan, you know, more of the 22 Arab countries will begin to make peace with Israel, and they'll be left behind. Yeah, and. Here's an interesting part of my, I don't know, my biography that's usually not known. I, I've been involved in this process for, it's kind of scary to say, close to 30 years because I, wow. I served as an advisor to Sakurabi right in the wow. early 1990s. So I have an historical perspective on this, this whole peace process. And I will tell you that the current peace plan is the most realistic peace plan I've seen. It's the only one with a, you know, a width of a chance of succeeding. And... It is a very good plan for the Palestinians, for the Israelis, for everybody. Uh, if the Palestinians miss this one, um, it will be yet another—not just a missed opportunity, a terrible historic tragedy for them.
0: How it is true, and it's a—it's a it's a, a, obviously a very important time and reevaluation for the Palestinians. When I about a week or two before the deal was announced, I was talking to a Trump official. I said, "Hey, listen, uh, brush up on the art of the deal. There's something coming down the road, and you'll understand what, why I asked you to go back and look at the." president's old book, Art of the Deal. And, and when you mm-hmm. go back, and I did, and, uh, it, you know, he always said the best way to get a deal is know what a person wants and know what their b- biggest fears are, and then try to navigate between those two beacons. Um, it seems as though the Trump administration did something that Pal- the Palestinians have never seen before, which is, we've had enough. We don't need a deal with you right now. We're going to go on. Does that sort of emanate from a, a classic CEO's um, negotiating
1: strategy? Yes, that and also is another little uh, aspect of the tr- of Trump uh, diplomacy, which is very much is different from previous administrations, which is, you know, in, in previous rounds of the peace process, and I participated in these, if someone says, we don't like this plan, they come back in two, three days and get a better plan. So the incentive is, of course, to reject the plan. Of course. But under this administration, the message went out, if you don't accept this plan, the next plan is going to be worse for you. And then next planet, that's going to be even worse for you. And I think that comes out of not a diplomacy, but out of the business world. Wow. I was fortunate to be involved in this process as well. Um, I spent four years as the, the deputy minister in, in Prime Minister Netanyahu's office.
0: Right. And went to
1: the White House several times to talk about the peace process. And I think the major message I brought, again, for this sort of historical perspective, which is, if you give the Palestinians the veto over the process, the process is not going to go anywhere. Because they don't, the Palestinians really don't have yes in their vocabulary. They've never said yes. They always walk away. And your plan will die. Direct the plan, not the Palestinians. Direct them at the Sunni Arab states, like the UAE, and direct them at the mainstream of the Israeli public. Because they're the people you have to convince. And I, I can't take you know, credit for this. I think they've heard me. But this is precisely what this plan does. Yeah. And it's saying to the Israeli public, here's a good deal. This is the best deal you're going to get. It's saying to the Arab world, jump on this now, and you will get security and defense against Iran, and you'll get innovation from Israel. And it's saying to the Palestinians, you're not going to join it. Up, oh, you lost out again. But we're not That's going to wait for right. you this time. We're not. That and I think it's, it's, it's a game changer. I really do, John.
0: Yeah, and as more as more gulf states join the the stronger the message is that the region's moving on from this uh endless negotiation that's gone on for for decades um speaking of the next gulf states if you look out over the gulf and arab states who do you think is the most next uh, the most likely next candidate to do a deal with israel to open up relations to to build this coalition beyond uae do you have any favorites in mind as you look at the region
1: well, you know, when I was ambassador, I had good relations with almost all of these countries, uh, not publicly for the most part, quietly. Right. Now it can be public. Um, I would I would uh, expect the Bahrainis, the Omanis to join in uh, right. pretty soon, perhaps the Sudanese. Um, but what I think is going to happen is when other Arab leaders see that this relationship between the UAE and Israel is highly profitable and that those who don't get on the bandwagon now, okay, are gonna lose out, then they will then rush to join as well. That's because a precedent has been set.
0: Yeah, and you look at the region, it's been so oil and energy dependent for so long, but there's a, there's a limit to that economy. You can only go so far, and when gas prices or oil prices fall, those countries feel the sudden impact of that. The opportunity, it seems, for the region is to create a diversified economy, You know, like, like Israel's had for a long time, but to spread that all through the region, do you see, uh, what industries do you see, uh, obviously tourism I've heard a lot about in the last week or two, but what other industries are likely to blossom in this region as a result of the sort of transnational partnerships that are, that are, are, for, are forming? Well,
1: it's high-tech agriculture. Israel is a leader in, in high-tech agriculture. It is um, autonomous driving. Again, we're the world leaders in autonomous driving. Um, it is 3D printer. I don't belabor this, but we're the leaders in 3D printing. Wow. It is cybersecurity. Right. About Israel, you know, we're only about 10 million people. We account for about 20 percent of the world's investment uh, in cybersecurity. Very, very high. But I think really going to be the, the the truly transformative technology will be in water. So just just give you a couple of statistics. You know, Israel um, reclaims about 90 percent of its water. Wow, the country that comes after us is Spain that only reclaims 13% of the water. So we're we're leagues ahead of everybody else.
0: Uh, We are the most
1: advanced water desalination plants in the
0: world. Right, That I'm familiar Um, with.
1: I have been involved in technologies that on one hand create water out of air. I'm not kidding you about this, water out of air, very good water out of air, as well as water from hydrogen and ammonia Uh, with the byproduct is is water and energy, just amazing. Electricity and energy from hydrogen and ammonia. these are gonna take off. These are gonna take off in a, in a region which is parched. We are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I learned, uh, I learned a lot about the desalinization and the Israeli leadership on that a few years ago on a project and it's really remarkable. We take for granted in the United States that uh, we get plenty of rain, you know, California, maybe not in the Southwest but most of the US has a lot of water and we just take for granted the, the incredible- And you're not gonna be able supply. to be
1: very long. You know, I, did some, I did a lot of traveling out in the Midwest. I met with governors in Oklahoma and Kansas right and they told me something that totally astonished the israelis which was that farmers in kansas and oklahoma don't pay for water yeah and (laughs) isn't that amazing what you don't pay for water yeah and then you wonder why you run out of water uh you may have to start changing a little bit of the mentality of the free water
0: absolutely no that is true uh population growth clearly puts that pressure on that on that amazing asset um, when you look at this dynamic and now you know, there's a significant movement, momentum in the region, what are the biggest impediments? What could get in the way of the, of the growth of this extraordinary moment that occurred uh, a couple of weeks ago?
1: Well, what could get in the way is what often has gotten away, uh, which is terror. Right. And um, it, it's one of the paradoxes of any peace process. You think that peace is going to bring, well, peace. And every time you've made any movement for peace, uh, it has brought the terrorists out of the woodwork. Because they're going to do their utmost to try to block the peace. It happened after Anwar Sadat came to Israel. He was assassinated. Right. Um, it happened uh, even during the Oslo years. We had all the terrible uh, terror here. Um, so be prepared, for example, for Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, not coincidentally both of them backed by Iran, which is the world's right. largest state sponsor of terror, to try to block this. They try to block it by the way they know best, for which they're best equipped, is by Shooting at
0: people and trying to kill people. Iran is the the odd man out in this deal again, and I, I yes. wonder if what message you think uh, diplomatically, militarily, this new uh, opportunity, this new movement uh, uh, presents to Iran. What, what message would Israel, the United States, like Iran to hear from this?
1: Well, the message is now there is an open alliance against Iran. An open alliance against Iran. Iran is facing uh, punishing sanctions from the United States. There's no end running those sanctions by going to the Europeans or, or others. And uh, the Iranians are going to have no choice, depending on the outcome in November, to be very frank with you, um, but to return to the negotiating table. And um, even and President Trump said he's willing to negotiate with them, at which point I think Israel is going to have to make a, a, a decision. We're going to have to come out and say specifically what we think a good deal would look like. Now, I tell you, right. honestly, we, we didn't do this in 2015 at the time that uh, President Obama negotiated that agreement and enabled some of the proponents of that agreement to claim that no deal was good enough for Israel. Well, it wasn't true. There are very specific things we need from that deal. We need a true uh, dismantling of the Iranian nuclear uh, uh, infrastructure. We need an end to supporting terror. We need Iran to come clean on its form on its previous nuclear military activity. We need truly invasive inspections uh, by the international community. We need all these things, and we need an end to the intercontinental ballistic missile program, which by the way is not aimed at us. It's aimed at you. You don't need a, in, an ICBM to hit Israel. You need one to hit Washington. And, uh, right. and I think that all these demands should be on the table. Um, we have no desire to see the Iranian people suffer. We have a uh, a thousand, thousands of years of history with these people. Uh, until 1979, we were, we were allies. But we don't want that. It's this regime, and this regime has to know that uh, that if they want to keep their nuclear program, they will not be able to survive economically, and they'll be facing a united strategic front against them in the Middle East.
0: Is regime change the only solution in Iran, or could you imagine a scenario where a deal is struck with the current leadership that uh, could meet the conditions that satisfy Israel, the United States, uh, the Europeans?
1: Well, um, I'm going to surprise you with my answer. And that is, it's almost irrelevant. Because an Islamic Republic regime, uh, which basically gives up jihad, it it gives up trying to conquer the Middle East. It gives up trying to conquer Jerusalem and Mecca and and Medina, uh, which ceases to support terror. is not the same regime anymore. It is actually a regime that will have right.
0: changed itself. That's a great point. Uh, you're mm-hmm. exactly right. Um, you mentioned the election, and I'd love, I'd love you to turn your attention for a second to yeah. America, because a lot will depend around the world on who's president uh, the day after the election, whether we're going to have another four years of Trump or uh, the first four years of a Biden presidency. Uh, how, are, uh, how is Israel, how is the region, how is the rest of the world looking at this election right now?
1: Well, let's take it from an Israeli perspective without getting involved in the election. And that is this. Um I know, I know the former vice president well. I know the former senator well. Um, and, uh, and, and their relationship to Israel is very, very strong. Uh, I mean, think of all the candidates that were running in the Democratic ticket, they're the strongest. And, um, he has a good and they've come up recently to say they've never used US aid as a matter of sort of arm twisting Israel. All that's great. There are policy differences and, and substantive policy differences. One of them relates to the Palestinians. I would assume that if, uh, if Biden and Harris were elected, they would get us in the Trump peace plan, go back to the Obama and Clinton peace plans, uh, which I think are unworkable. Uh, they would probably uh, reopen that Palestinian embassy in Washington and renew uh, support for UNRWA. I don't think they'd move the American embassy back to Tel Aviv, but but other issues there. and They would oppose a Israeli settlement building uh, in a way that Trump administration does right. not. Uh, but I think even a bigger policy difference will be over Iran, because both Um, uh, Kamala Harris and um, and former Vice President Biden have said that they will renew the Iran nuclear deal. Now, understand that for us that's a strategic danger. That's not a political issue. That's a matter of the security of our children and grandchildren. And and we'll have to be vocal about that. So that is is gonna be very important. Basically overall, without any reference to Democrats or Republicans, Israel, like the UAE, like virtually every state that is allied with the United States in this region has the same interest. That is a strong, united to the greatest degree America. Um, disturbed, disturbed by um, a, a campaign right now where, where both parties seem to be couching it as, as existential. If the other guy wins, it's the end of the country. Right. Um, right. A country right. that seems yeah. uncertain how best to police itself right, is certainly uncertain <laughs> about how to police the world. And we have all relied on America being the global policeman. It,
0: it is a remarkable scene. Now, uh, you've, you've dealt with violence in Israel, uh, usually internal violence, uh, but, uh, terrorism, for a long time. And and uh, Israelis have internalized it and been, been able to create a system that prospers and keeps uh, your country safe in spite of the threats. Uh, this is new to us as, as we look around. We're just not used to seeing cities aflame and officers being attacked the way uh, we have. the. Um, as an outsider you know from, being from Israel is there anything we can learn from the Israeli experience as we try to gain uh, some control over the violence over some of the tactics that have been used in recent weeks to sow chaos and violence in our cities
1: it is difficult because there are aspects of American society which are not in sort of indigenous to Israeli society even in many ways to Middle Eastern society and, and I'll give you I'll give you two examples which are actually closely related one is gun ownership okay so, so yeah. you know typical Israeli question I'd get when I was in Washington is, why do Americans need so many guns? They have the strongest army in the world. That, why do they need so many guns? And the answer I'd have to give them was, they need so many guns to protect them against the strongest army in the world. Because in America, gun ownership is related to freedom and liberty. True? It is. is yeah. Second Amendment. Um, less than 3% of Israelis own guns. Um, in, in our That's world, amazing. it's even lower. I imagine in the, in the UAE, it's even lower than that. So it's not that the connection between liberty and guns doesn't exist here. And that's alien. Um, we um, and 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 we also have the ability to monitor and map using very sophisticated systems that are not without certain controversy here, but would be completely unacceptable in the United States. They would be seen as infringements on this and we've, we've encountered this with battling Corona. Because so many right, of our successes right, right. in Corona is the fact that you know if someone's tested positive, everybody who came in contact with that person, even sort of fleetingly, gets a message on their phone right. and they're put into immediate quarantine. You can't do that in America. That's perceived as a infringement on liberty. So uh, yes, so it's yep. closely linked. You know, gun ownership. Which now there's lots of reports about people showing up to these these demonstrations with weapons, um, and that's very dangerous, highly combustible, and the notion that you can't really monitor the way you'd like to because it's not legal in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's, it's remarkable that we have such a unique culture built on our Constitution that uh, it sometimes we forget what it looks like to the rest of the world as, uh, as they're looking in on our, our moments of strife or happiness. Um, as you set out now over the next 60 days, there's gonna be more movement. Do you think we'll see another deal in the Middle East before the American election or is that uh, not possible, I think?
1: It's possible and I'm sure that if the current president and the current prime minister of Israel have any say in it, th- they strike a deal tomorrow um, because it, it's, it's certainly good politics and not just as good for the region and good for Israel, and good for ours, but it's also very good politics. It's a great photo op. Um, as both, you know, as presidents learned from uh, Clinton learned and and, and uh, Jimmy Carter learned, everyone wants that White House moment, that South Lawn moment where they're they're standing yes, like this the and there's an Arab on one arm and, a, and an Israeli on That that They all want this. It's uh, a great moment. Yeah. So, of course, they want it. Um, but, you know, each of these countries have their internal dynamics. And um, I'm sure they want this agreement. I'm sure they want. And they just, have, it's a matter of, um, you know, the Middle East operates according to a different clock uh, than even Western societies. You know, clocks were illegal in the Middle East until the 18th century. People didn't want clocks. No <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the Middle East, often you say to someone, I'll see you in an hour. It could be two days. Different sense of the fact. <laughs> isn't different. that funny? Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't think that necessarily the Ahmadis or the Bahrainis or others are going to be looking at, either the American electoral clock or internal Israeli politics, Uh, they have their own considerations. But I I do, I'm deeply, deeply convinced that they want this agreement.
0: Yeah, no, I've been talking to some of the ambassadors here in town for some of the Gulf states and other Arab nations. There's there's clearly a desire to make this happen, but I think you're right. The internal politics of each country, the cultural mores they have to address and jumping into this new uh, universe is probably gonna take some time for some and maybe faster for others. Um, last but not least, I want to ask a little bit about the state of affairs in Israel with the prime minister, uh, there's the corruption investigation, there's all the different dynamics. How is Israel doing and how, what will it look like six months from now? When you look out over the horizon, there's power sharing, there's all these different dynamics, but what do you see the next six months of Israeli politics looking like?
1: Yeah, I, I always say I'm a historian and I have enough problems predicting the past. Um, <laughs> nobody knows, but my, my gut feeling, and my gut feeling is, is, is often on target is that there won't be elections, that nobody wants elections right now. Um, Netanyahu is not getting stronger. He's getting weaker. Um, Mm -hmm. There's disaffection, certainly with the handling of the corona crisis, deep disaffection about our economic morass. We have the highest level of unemployment uh, in in recent memory, probably going back to the 1973 young people war. Um, People are desperate, in many cases hungry. We've really taken quite a blow from this. And as America and the world continue to reel um, from the Corona uh, epidemic, uh, we those those reverberations are going to affect us as well. We do trade, um, you know, something in the order of 35 percent of our trade is just with Western Europe alone. Today, India announced just catastrophic economic um, um, consequences yeah, yeah, of, of yeah. Corona, and, and India is a major yeah, major trading partner for Israel, particularly in the area of water. Yes, so. Um, it's going to be a roller coaster. And in that period, a government that was formed to fight corona, it's a corona coalition, is not going to want to go to elections so quickly. And so I don't that's think a that's going point. to happen. And um, it's, what's here an interesting point, maybe hard for some Americans to grasp, is that with this, as I said, game-changing peace between Israel and the UAE, it has had almost no impact on the polls.
0: Because people say,
1: oh, that's great, UAE. But what about dinner
0: yeah something so historic right yeah how
1: do i feed my kids and that makes perfect sense
0: yeah it's amazing how much the pandemic has changed the entire global structure uh, and changed the, even just the immediate day-to-day concerns of of each individual in each society it's uh, when they say it's a game-changing event they mean it <laughs> oh
1: boy and we, so, we, well, we, don't, we don't even know what game we're in never mind changing. uh we don't that's right we don't
0: um yeah, no. I
1: I I just say uh, going back to the to the short story book, the night archer, I'm now writing my second collection of short stories and, and some of these short stories deal with pandemic. And uh Wow. And it's
0: it's even writing a short story about it is a moving target. It's hard. Yeah. Because nobody knows. It is. We just don't un- nobody knows. That's right. And every time we think we got something licked, it moves and
1: it moves. Uh, it's one of the moving targets
0: of uh all of our all of our extraordinary talents that we have today and all our scientific know-how this one has still evaded us for a while uh, Last last very humbling isn't it it? Is it, humbling? it is it is it some of that vulnerability in night archer when you read that yeah you feel some of that vulnerability today why can't we why can't we solve this we're so used to beating things and uh this one has has humbled us in ways that i think we'll remember for a long time so last question for you, sir. I'm, I'm, I always like to ask this question of, of folks who've had such an important life and, and had such an impact on public life. What's next for you beyond your writing and your next fiction stories and your, your great work you're doing? What, what check, things on your checklist, your, your bucket list of things you want to accomplish are still ahead for you?
1: Well, um, I've always had two. My wife, my, my, my life has always been bifurcated. And, uh, and that is on one hand, I'm a writer. Um, and right. it's intensely personal and important to me. On the other hand, a person of service. And I, I think unfortunately, uh, John, those two halves have, have come to be viewed in many ways as sort of mutually contradictory or exclusive. And it wasn't always right. Um I And mean, this country in many ways was founded by a writer by the name of Theodore Herzl. Um, and uh, in America's history also, um, but great sure, writers who sure. were also statesmen. Archibald McLeish was a big big uh, uh, role model for me, in Churchill, not to compare uh, myself uh, so grandly here, but there were people who wrote and and led. Yeah, and their inspirations. So I, I remain very active politically here. Uh, I'm involved in, in both an advisory capacity and a, um, and a commentary capacity, and wouldn't rule out uh, future roles for me in, in government and diplomacy.
0: That's, uh, that's a good summary. We'll be watching to see how that unfolds. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I can't thank you enough. Congratulations. Thank you. The book, too. It's an, it's an amazing read. I, I just couldn't put it down last night, and I'm going to finish we'll finish the
1: rest of it. I want to hear what you think about the rest of it. I'm, I'm anxious to see.
0: I, I certainly will. We wish you well with the book and with all the endeavors you have in, uh, in the future with Israel and America and, this, and the great region that is the Middle East. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Be well. Be healthy.
0: All right. Happy. We thank shall. You. Thank you, sir. All right, right, folks, we'll be back in a few seconds to wrap things up for today. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. and protect your most important asset, the equity, in your home. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Justin News. I'm so glad you joined us. I hope you enjoyed that very thoughtful and uh, uh, extensive interview we got with Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, one of the world's preeminent Middle East experts. We covered a lot of ground, U.S. and Israeli elections, Iran, uh, the new UAE, U.S. Deal, his new book, which, by the way, I highly recommend. Uh, we're so grateful to have such influential and thoughtful guests as Michael Oranon like we had today. Uh, also, keep an eye on just the news. I think there's going to be more breaking news on Russia, Ukraine, accountability. We have the new uh, rules, the new procedures unveiled today by Chris Ray and Bill Barr, which I think are a step forward, though not the final step that needs to be done for deterrence, what happened in the bogus crossfire hurricane investigation we still need more accountability according to the people i'm interviewing uh, in order for there to be a deterrence but important developments there and when these documents break when we get our hands on the state department memos showing the improper illegal monitoring of american social media accounts by the state department by our embassy in ukraine we're going to break it on justthenews.com so be checking the site And we'll be back Thursday to talk about all those revelations, what's in the documents, what is next to come on all things China, all things Russia, on all things Ukraine, and, of course, the Middle East. These are all important historic times. And don't forget, we also got an election in 63 days. Can't take our eye off that one as well. All right. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support of JustTheNews.com. Thank you for supporting our advertisers, our sponsors. Those people who have products in the JTNshop.com store that we open, those are all ways you express your support, not only for our journalism, but the great people that support it and advertise on our site and on this great show. Until Thursday, you've been listening to John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. God bless, be safe, be healthy, enjoy your families, and we'll be back Thursday with another edition of this great podcast. Thank you.